All right. Well, let's uh, let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for a new month. Grateful for the opportunity to study your word today. Grateful for the opportunity to share in the Lord's Supper and in the fellowship meal that follows. I do pray for the enabling and guiding ministry of the Holy Spirit so that we can be spoken to today as your people. And we recognize, Father, that sometimes unconfessed sin can inhibit that ministry. So we're just going to pause for a moment with a few moments of personal silence to personally confess sins to you, not to uh, restore position, our position in you, which is eternal and secure, but our day-by-day experience with you so that we can receive fully from you as members of your church. We may remain thankful, Lord, for the promise of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. And we just ask that you would be with us and guide us um, during our sessions this morning. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Happy uh, September. Let's take our Bibles, if we could, and open them to the book of Jeremiah. Chapter 49 and verses 23 through 27. Book of Jeremiah, chapter 49, verses 23 through 27. As you you all know, and if you don't know this, I can't help you at this point, but we did a verse-by-verse teaching through Ezekiel 36 through 39 looking at how the alignment of the nations today is virtually identical to what the prophet Ezekiel said 2,600 years ago in that section of Scripture. And it was at that point we opened it up for questions. There were several questions that came in. I think this is now our 10th Q&A session. And... We're now dealing with one question, and once we're finished dealing with this question, the series will be officially over. It started uh, the first Sunday in January, so this I didn't really plan on this going nine months. It's kind of like a pregnancy, I guess, when you think about it. Um, but one of the one of the questions that's come in is, what is your understanding of the first near now or next prophecies. So there's a mindset out there promoted by a lot of different Bible teachers today in the popular realm that Ezekiel 38 and 39 is really not the major area that you're supposed to study. It is a major area, but you also have to look at all of these other prophecies which basically we're told are supposed to be fulfilled in some cases before the tribulation period even starts. And those are what are called the now prophecies. So the now prophecies would include prophecies of Elam, Damascus, and Psalm 83. And we were in the middle of doing some teaching showing that all of the prophecies related to Elam, Damascus, and Psalm 83 have already been fulfilled. So there's no need to treat them as futuristic prophecies. Psalm 83, where people get this Psalm 83 war, as I'll show you if time permits today, is really not a prophecy at all. It's what's called a imprecatory prayer. So there are a lot of folks out there building prophetic scenarios from passages that really don't support what it is they're saying. And to get some help on this, I've recommended the book by Mark Hitchcock, Showdown with Iran. 
appendices 2 and 3, excuse me, appendices 1 and 2, which deal with Elam and Damascus. So we've used over and over again this quote by Charles Ryrie, which I think is very helpful. He says, eschatology, the study of the end, based on the Bible, suffers at the hands of its friends and foes. Those who play it down usually avoid assigning specific meaning to prophetic texts. Those who play it up often assign too much. So when you get into the subject of Bible prophecy, you'll find that there's a tension between two groups that you have to avoid, in my opinion. It's always good to stay out of the ditches, so to speak. Um, Avoid extremes is sort of um, a pretty good maxim in life. There's one group that will say, oh, all this stuff is allegorical. That's the viewpoint of replacement theology. And Sugarland Bible Church rejects that perspective. There's another group of people that are basically on your side concerning replacement theology, but they're hyping prophecies into some kind of newspaper scenario when, when you carefully look at those prophecies, the prophecies don't support what it is they're saying. And so there's people out there that will start not with the Bible, but they'll start with the newspaper and read that back into the Bible when the Bible really doesn't support what it is they're saying. And these are people that are generally well-intentioned, but they haven't been, in my opinion, taught very well. And very, very sadly, in this Internet age, in this social media age, um, it doesn't take much to put up a tweet or put up a website or put up a YouTube channel and get, you know, thousands and thousands of followers, you know, overnight. And so that's why I think a lot of these questions came in as we were concluding our study on the Middle East meltdown concerning Elam, Damascus, and Psalm 83. I think this relates to the friends of prophecy that read too much into the text. So in a couple of sessions ago, uh, we dealt with the prophecies related to Elam, Jeremiah 49 and Ezekiel 32, and we showed you that those prophecies um, are prophecies that already were fulfilled. And then from there, we went to one of the most popular prophecies being touted today, and that's the Prophecy concerning the imminent destruction of Damascus. And the most popular one that people are using is Isaiah 17, verses 1 and 2. Damascus is exciting because Damascus is in Syria. Syria is to the north of the nation of Israel, just to the north. It's... What separates Syria from the land of Israel is this buffer zone called the Golan Heights. And as we've talked about, the big three, uh, Russia, Iran, and Turkey, now have a presence in Syria. And so this makes for a lot of speculation that, oh my goodness, what's going to happen to Syria? What's going to happen to Damascus? And so here's a headline that you can pull up these kinds of headlines all the time now. It says, Putin of Russia to meet Erdogan of Turkey and Racy of Persia in Tehran to discuss Syria. And people look at that and they say, oh my goodness, Isaiah 17, 1 and 2 is about to be fulfilled. So the scenario that I'm familiar with, I've heard a lot of very popular teachers in this area preach this. The scenario that I've heard is that essentially what's about to happen is the Israelis are about to destroy the city of Damascus in response to the big three. And that is going to somehow light the fuse, they say, fan the flame, they say, of the Gog-Magog invasion in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And when you hear that, it sounds really interesting. I mean, that kind of thing will sell books. The question is, is that really what the Bible says? 
Can you use that prophecy concerning the imminent destruction of Damascus in that way? So here is the prophecy. It says the oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus is about to be removed from being a city and will become a fallen ruin. And people read that and they say, oh my goodness, i got to keep my eyes on the headlines because any minute Damascus is going to be destroyed by the Israelis in fulfillment of Isaiah 17, 1 and 2. Because after all, the Bible says Damascus is about to be removed from being a city. And what we've shown, I think, in the last two lessons is, yes, Damascus is about to be removed from being a city at the time Isaiah wrote that in the 7th century. So this is actually a prophecy, or the 8th century, I should say. This is a prophecy that actually has already been in 732 B.C., 700 years before the time of Christ, when Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria came and destroyed Damascus and Syria. So if what we have said in the last two lessons is in fact accurate, then that takes a piece of data out of the end-time scenario that the sensationalists are trying to push. Um, So we've dealt with Isaiah 17, and the only one left in terms of Damascus to deal with is another one that they use. It's in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 49, verses 23 through 27. So let's read what that says here. I'm just going to read these verses to you. Jeremiah 49, verses 23 through 27. This also is in a section of Jeremiah dealing with his judgment on the surrounding nations. Concerning Damascus, Hamath and Arpad are put to shame, for they have heard the bad news. They are disheartened. There is anxiety by the sea. It cannot be calmed. Damascus has become helpless. She has turned away to flee, and panic has gripped her. Distress and pangs have taken hold of her like a woman in childbirth. How the city of praise has not, how the city of praise has not been deserted, the town of my joy. Therefore her young men will fall in her streets and all the men of war will be silenced in that day, declares the Lord. I will set the wall of Damascus, I will set fire rather on the wall of Damascus, and it will be, and it will devour the fortified towers of Ben Hadad. Can somebody book a trip to the Middle East where we can visit the towers of Ben Hadad? No. Because this is something that existed in Jeremiah's day. That point notwithstanding, people are using this passage to teach this scenario that Damascus is going to be taken out by the Assyrians, fulfilled, I think, in their minds anyway, at the same time as Isaiah 17, 1 and 2, and that will precipitate the Gog-Magog invasion. So just as an example of people that do this, I've already read for you in prior sessions this kind of long quote from Joel Rosenberg But I'm not going to reread the whole thing. It's a couple of sentences because I want you to see how people are using Jeremiah 49 and Isaiah 17 in end times teaching. He says, when viewed together, we can say the following about the prophecies concerning Damascus found in Isaiah 17, which we've already studied, and Jeremiah 49. And he goes on and he says these are prophecies that could be fulfilled before the tribulation period even starts. Rosenberg goes on and he says Damascus has certainly been attacked, conquered and burned at various points in history, including biblical history, but it is clear. In other words, you can't question what he's saying because it's obvious in his mind. It is clear that the prophecies of Isaiah 17 and Jeremiah 49 have not been fulfilled 
Damascus, after all, is one of the oldest continuous, continuously inhabited cities on the planet. So his thinking is Damascus exists today, therefore these prophecies have never been fulfilled. And what he doesn't tell you is the word olam, destroyed forever, is not used in Isaiah 17. And it's not used in Jeremiah 49. That word is used concerning the prophecies about Babylon, but it's never used concerning Damascus. And so the Bible never says Damascus is going to be destroyed and it's never going to exist ever. All it says is the city is about to be destroyed. Now that happened, 732 B.C. And the Bible never says it can't be rebuilt um, because it obviously is rebuilt today. People live there today. A lot of New Testament history in Acts chapter 9 takes place in Damascus concerning Saul of Tarsus and his conversion. A lot of the language you'll find there uh, mentions Damascus over and over again. So the biblical language concerning the destruction of Damascus has already happened. And they're making it sound as if it's about to happen at any moment. They're using Isaiah 17 that way, and they're using Jeremiah 49 that way. Now, when I put up names like this, Joel Rosenberg, for example, these are basically people that I agree with on 99% of things. But I think this group, the near next prophecies mindset, has pushed the envelope too far. And if I don't mention who they are, um, you're not going to recognize the false teaching when it shows up. There's this very weird mindset in the body of Christ today um, that you can never mention the name of an advocate of a false teaching if the advocate of that false teaching is within the evangelical camp. I mean, you can mention people outside the evangelical camp, but you can't mention people within the evangelical camp. If I don't mention the names of people within the evangelical camp, how in the world could you have any red flags about people concerning false teachings? And the most destructive forms of false teaching are not false teachings that come from outside the church and come in, Paul over and over again warns about heresies coming up within the church. So if heresies are going to come up within the church, then you have to call out the names, as unpleasant as it is, of people promoting things that are off within the church. I think you have to be even more aggressive in calling out the names of people within the church because it's people within the church that your average churchgoer has a difficult time seeing false prophecy come through. The thinking is, well, they're a Christian, they're a believer, they've blessed me in other areas, and they let their defenses down. And when a false teaching arises from within, they don't recognize it as such because so-and-so preached a sermon six months ago or so-and-so wrote a book five years ago that was a blessing to me. How could false teaching come from them? And if you're actually a legitimate pastor-teacher, part of that responsibility involves the need to call out the names of people that are throwing the body of Christ into a state of confusion. Um, In fact, you guys all nominate elders at Sugarland Bible Church. We have a, a, a form that we put out when that time of the church cycle rolls around where you can actually look at the form and see what are the expectations of an elder at Sugarland Bible Church. And you will see in that document the idea expressed that the false, uh, the elder, the prospective elder, has to be willing to name the names of false teachers within as well as without. Paul the Apostle role modeled this for us. You know, he said things like, Alexander the coppersmith, you know, has done me much harm. Uh, May the Lord repay him for his deeds. 
Now, for someone to get close enough to the Apostle Paul named Alexander the Coppersmith, we would think that Alexander the Coppersmith was a believer within Paul's sphere of influence, and Paul was not afraid to call out the name. You'll see this in the little book of, what is it, uh, Third John, if memory serves. It calls out the name of a man named Diotrephes, who John says Diotrephes loves to be preeminent among them. So here's kind of an ecclesiastical bully, if you will, that would grab the reins of authority within the church so he himself could be glorified. John the Apostle calls out his name. In Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, towards the end of the chapter, you'll see Paul doing the exact same thing when he said Hymenaeus, and I think the other one named Alexander, have erred concerning the truth, teaching that the resurrection is past. So here's a couple of people that got into influence within the church and they started to promote a heresy, and Paul names the name of those two people. Now, this business of calling out people's names, I think it should be done very carefully. I think it should be done very cautiously. There's a lot of ministries, in my view, that overdo it, and they attack everybody for everything, and that's not what we're about here at Sugarland Bible Church. But when we're dealing with a specific subject like this, and I make the statement that there's confusion being brought into the body of Christ because of the mistreatment exegetically of these prophecies. I'm not doing you any good if I don't tell you exactly who it is I'm talking about. It's like the Tylenol scare in the 1980s where people were consuming Tylenol and some people were dying. And the FDA came out with a public service announcement and said, um, you guys need to stay away from Tylenol until we get this matter fixed. The FDA called out the name Tylenol. They called out the company. Now, why would they do that? Because how in the world would you know what to stay away from unless a name is given? I mean, what if the FDA said something really bad is going on and we're not going to tell you who's causing it? I mean, that all that would do is whip up people into a state of fear and they wouldn't know who to stay away from. So I mentioned a name like Joel Rosenberg, not because I'm trying to demolish the man's entire ministry. I'm trying to show you that him and a lot of his like-minded people are confusing the body of Christ on this subject of the now, next, or near prophecies. I don't know if they're doing it maliciously. I don't think they're doing it with um, ill intent. But a mass amount of confusion is being caused as is evidenced by the volume of emails I've gotten on this topic when we opened up the Q&A section. So that's why I'm doing, you know, what I'm doing here. I like Joel Rosenberg and a lot of these others, but I think they've gone too far with these now, near, or next prophecies. So what do we do then with Jeremiah 49, verses 23 through 27? Well, here is my professor, who I think has it right, Charles Dyer, in the Bible Knowledge Commentary. And this is what he says concerning the prophecy of the destruction of Damascus found in Jeremiah 49:23 through 27. He says, three of the major cities of Syria, Hamath, Arpad, and Damascus, were dismayed because of the bad news of Babylon's advance. So this is something that actually took place in the 6th, 7th centuries, roughly. Damascus's pain was like that of a woman in labor. And then he says this, in Nebuchadnezzar's attack on Damascus. In other words, according to Charles Dyer, Jeremiah 49 Verses 23 through 27 is not some kind of prophecy about the imminent destruction of Damascus. What it's about is something Nebuchadnezzar did to Damascus back in the time of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is just making a short-term prediction. 
In Nebuchadnezzar's attack on Damascus, the soldiers of Damascus were silenced, i.e. killed, and her fortifications were burned. God vowed to consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad literally means the son of God, little g, was the name of the dynasty that ruled in Damascus, look at this, in the ninth to the 8th centuries B.C. That's what Ben-Hadad at the very end of the prophecy is talking about. This is something that Nebuchadnezzar, 5th, 6th century, right in there, did to Damascus. In other words, when Jeremiah had this prophecy, it was a, it was a futuristic prediction. But it was not a futuristic prediction about the end of the age. It was a futuristic prediction that would be fulfilled most likely within or just a shade out of Jeremiah's lifetime. So not every single prophecy in the Bible is about the end times. Uh, A lot of the prophecies are prophecies that have already been fulfilled. One of the reasons we have confidence in the prophecies of the end time is we can study the fulfilled prophecies and say, you know, the Holy Spirit does not change horses in midstream. If the short-term prophecies were fulfilled literally and accurately, then the long-term prophecies were, will be fulfilled literally and accurately. There are many long-term prophecies in the book of Jeremiah yet to come. I would put Jeremiah 50 and 51 in that category, but I don't put Jeremiah 49 into that category because what Jeremiah 49 is predicting, predicting fits the known facts of history concerning how Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Damascus. One of the clues that you can look at is the name Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's name does not show up in the prophecy that I just read, but if you go to the preceding prophecy, this is the prophecy concerning Egypt, a few chapters earlier, In Jeremiah 56, verse 2, you'll see the name Nebuchadnezzar. Notice what it says there. Jeremiah 46, I should say, verse 2. To Egypt, concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which is by the Euphrates River at Carchemish, which, what's the next word? Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. In other words, as you look at these table of nations in context, what you start to see is the dominant player is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar existed long ago in the 6th century and the 5th century. Look at Jeremiah 46 and look, if you will, at verse 13. The prophecy concerning Egypt continues. This is the message which the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet about the coming of, what's the next word? Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to smite the land Egypt. Now, I don't read that and say, well, that's a futuristic prophecy concerning Egypt. Because there was a man named Nebuchadnezzar back in the 5th, 6th century that destroyed Egypt. Notice, uh, if you will, Jeremiah chapter 46. Notice verses 25 and 26. The Lord of hosts of the God of Israel says, Behold, I am going to punish Ammon of Thebes and Pharaoh of Egypt along with their, with her gods and her kings, even Pharaoh, those who trust him, I shall give them over to the power of those who are, who are seeking their lives, even in the hand of, what's the next word? Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And into the hand of his officers. Afterwards, however, it will be inhabited in the days of old, declares the Lord. So I read that and I say, well, this, this is a prophecy concerning the destruction of Egypt. So can I get up at a prophecy conference and say, thus saith the Lord, I have a prophetic scenario for you. 
First the Israelis are going to take out Egypt. And then that's going to light the flame, which is going to bring in the Gog-Magog invasion. I have no authority to do that. Because the biblical data itself tells you who is going to do the destroying. A man all the way back to the 5th, 6th century, a man named Nebuchadnezzar. Notice Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 28, which comes just before, or just after, I should say, the prophecy that we read concerning Damascus in Jeremiah 49, 23 through 27. Verse 27 is followed by verse 28. Amen? Can I get an amen on that? And look at what the very next verse says. Jeremiah 49.28, concerning Kedar and the kingdoms of Hazar, which, what's the next word? Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated. Thus says the Lord, arise, go up to Kedar and devastate the men of the east. So right after the passage we just read comes a prophecy about Kedar and Hazar, which was obviously fulfilled in the past because it mentions the destroying agent Nebuchadnezzar. Look, if you will, at Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 30. Run away, flee, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Hazar, declares the Lord. For, what's the next word? Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has formed a plan against you and devised a scheme against you. So the surrounding prophecies are all talking about the destruction that took place at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar 500, 600 years roughly before the time of Christ. And so when our prophecy concerning Damascus, Jeremiah 49, verses 23 through 27, mentions at the very end the towers of Ben-Hadad, I'm not looking for some futuristic fulfillment of this prophecy. I'm saying this prophecy is going to be fulfilled just like the other prophecies were fulfilled historically. So all I'm doing here is taking these prophecies that people are excerpting, putting them into their books, putting them into their talks to build an end-time scenario around. The only thing I'm doing is I'm taking those prophecies and saying, well, let's first put them into their original context and see if these prophecies are really saying what people sensationalistically are saying that they're actually saying. You'll notice at the very end of the prophecy we just read concerning Damascus, it says there, I will set fire on the wall of Damascus and it will be fortif- and it will devour the fortified towers of Ben Hadad. Dr. Charles Dyer in the Bible Knowledge Commentary tells you what the towers of Ben Hadad were. Once again, he said, God vowed to consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. Literally, son of God, little g, Hadad, was the name of the dynasty that ruled in Damascus in the 9th to the 8th centuries B.C. So this is talking about an ancient dynasty that God overthrew in the time of Nebuchadnezzar. He's not at all talking about something in our newspapers, that's going to happen in the next split second. Dr. Mark Hitchcock, taking Dr. Dyer's language from the Bible Knowledge Commentary, makes this point very clear. First, he quotes Dyer. God vowed to consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad which was the name of a dynasty that ruled in Damascus in the 9th to the 8th centuries B.C. Now, Dr. Mark Hitchcock now gives a comment. Quote, Dyer notes that the mention of Ben-Hadad, which was the name of the dynasty that ruled in Damascus in the 9th to the 8th centuries B.C., the use of that name would be strange if this refers to an end-time event. 
The towers of Ben-Hadad are long gone today, close quote. So nobody today is saying, okay, we're going to book um, a trip to the Middle East and we're going to go see the the towers of Ben-Hadad because that's something that's long gone. This is a prophecy that was fulfilled a long time ago. So when you actually look at Isaiah 17 and Jeremiah 49, which are the two passages that Joel Rosenberg is using, amongst other interpreters, to build this scenario, what you see is those passages do not support what he is saying. The Bible is very clear that we are not to add or take away from God's book. Just read what he says at the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 22, and the harshness that he announces on people that will manipulate his word. If you take away, I'll take away your name from the book of life. That sounds pretty serious to me. If you add to my word, I will add to you the curses that are in this book. It looks pretty serious to me. That's why I think this issue of the now prophecies, the near prophecies, or the next prophecies, to my mind, is very serious, even though this false teaching is coming from people that generally I like and agree with. You know, the Bible never says don't call out call out false teachings except if it's one of your friends. People say, well, Andy, aren't you um, majoring on the minors? Aren't you getting into non-essential doctrines? Well, let's do an exercise today. Can we do that? Can you take your Bible and open it to the non-essential section? Let's let's look through. I'm looking for the non-essential section. This idea that this is essential, this is non-essential, I kind of understand what they're saying. This information is necessary for justification. This other information is not necessary for justification. I get that. I mean, there are certain things you have to know to be saved. And your perspective on... Jeremiah 49 is not one of them. But beyond that, this idea that this is important, this is not important. This is essential, this is not essential. I hope you understand that that is a completely made-up idea. It's largely made up by ecumenists that basically want to create sort of this big tent mindset where we're one big happy family. And then you point out, well, what about the doctrinal difference that we have with that group over there? We can't merge with them. And they'll come back and they'll say, oh, that's a non-essential section. The truth of the matter is the idea that this is essential, this is not essential, is a man-made attempt to micromanage God's word. What Jesus himself said is man does not live, is living important? Man does not live by bread alone, but by, anybody know the next word? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If God said it, it's important. And I don't have a right to take out magic marker or eraser and say, well, this is non-essential over here. I have no right to do that. Now, If you understand my thinking on that, then you start to understand our pulpit ministry here. Because why in the world would we be on lesson 91 in the book of Genesis? I mean, we gotta, everybody knows that that's a non-essential section. Uh, nonsense. If you do not understand the book of Genesis, which is the foundation of everything, you do not understand Israel. And if you don't understand Israel, you don't understand Jesus. And if you don't understand Jesus, you don't understand the church. And if you don't understand the foundation, how could you know what's coming at the end? Everything is built on the book of Genesis. Every single word in that book is essential. And according to Christ himself, it's essential for us to live. That's why there's this uh, sort of malnourishment today within Christianity. Christians are malnourished. The reason that they are malnourished is they are not being exposed to all the food groups that you need to be healthy. 
And what are all the food groups you need to be spiritually healthy? Jesus told us what they were. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's why, to me, what's happening here with these near prophecies, next prophecies, is actually a big deal. Dr. John Walward of Jeremiah 49 and Isaiah 17 lays it out very clearly in his excellent book, The Nations in Prophecy. Damascus was one of the most ancient cities of the Middle East and one of the few to have continuous history down to modern times. It's first mentioned in Genesis 14, verse 15. It continued to have a relationship to Israel throughout the Old Testament period, where there are more than 40 references in the New Testament where it is mentioned 15 times. Then he says this, The more extended prophecies, as found in Isaiah 17, verses 1 through 14, the prior two lessons we did, in other words, and Jeremiah 49, what we're talking about now, have all been fulfilled, as well as the occasional references to Damascus found in Isaiah 7, 8, Amos 1, Amos 3, Amos 5. In other words, if you're an end times student of the Bible, you don't have to be worried that at any second the Israelis are going to take out Damascus in fulfillment of Isaiah 17 and Jeremiah chapter 49. Now, having said all that, am I saying that what is happening in Syria and in Damascus now is prophetically insignificant. I mean, am I saying that because Isaiah 17 has already been fulfilled and Jeremiah 49 has already been fulfilled, that what is happening right now in Syria means prophetically absolutely nothing? That is not what I'm saying. Because we believe in something called prophetic stage setting. You cannot have Bible prophecies find their fulfillment unless the stage is set. Uh, We've used this example many times of the chessboard. You cannot have a chess match until somebody takes the game board out of the game box, which is usually stuck up in the closet somewhere, You cannot have a chess match unless the pieces are properly assembled. You cannot have a chess match until somebody puts all of this on a table and the players take their respective seats on opposite sides of the table. When all of that starts happening in terms of stage setting, you see a chess match is about to begin. You cannot have a game of basketball until someone comes in and sweeps the gym floor until somebody comes in and starts to sell popcorn, and you can't sell popcorn unless the fans show up. And you cannot have a game of basketball until the teams come out and they start doing their layup drills on respective sides of the court. I mean, the the zebras, the referees have to come out. The captains, you know, have to shake hands. I mean, all of that has to happen before you can have a basketball game. That's how to understand Bible prophecy. Ezekiel 38 and 39, which we've been studying, is not going to happen in a vacuum. God is going to set the stage for it first. Hey, that's just like the first coming prophecies, isn't it? You know our whole world was set up perfectly for Jesus, right down to the most minute detail. Because 300 years before Jesus was ever born, there was a man named Alexander the Great who came on the scene and he made the Greek language the lingua franca or the known language of the ancient world. And if you know anything about Greek, you know that Greek is far more sophisticated than most other dialects. As you no doubt know, we have one word for love in English. There's four in Greek. What kind of love are we talking about? Eros, romantic. 
Storgis family type love. And one of them I'm forgetting there, phileo, brotherly love. Let's see, phileo, storgos, eros. And then there's another form called agape, which is the selfless, the most selfless form of love you can have. So when John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the Greek is agape. And if you know a little bit about Koine Greek, you say to yourself, wow, God, God really loves people. God really loves the human race at the deepest, most selfless level. That's why 1 Corinthians 13, when it's talking about true love, it says love expects nothing in return. That's true love. When you love somebody and you, ex- you expect no reciprocation. Our society throws around the word love, doesn't have the foggiest idea what it means. But the Bible does because it uses the word agape. So by the time Jesus showed up, that language was now on the books to be to record the revelation of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And who set the stage for that language to come into existence? God used a guy named Alexander the Great, who, by the way, was a God-hater to bring in Hellenization to set the stage for the first coming of Christ. And then in 63 B.C., there was a a general by the name of Pompey who took Rome and extended it into the land of Israel. And Rome was known for Pax Romana, universal Roman peace, and universal Roman roads. You can think whatever you want about Alexander the Great and Rome. They did a lot of nasty things, but they did some things that God sovereignly allowed to come into existence. And so when Jesus died on a cross, rose bodily from the grave, ascended back to the Father's right hand, and the gospel was now known and could be preached and written about, you have the exact right circumstances in place in the world for the rapid transmission of the gospel. God set the stage for that with the Roman Empire at least uh, six decades, if not more, in the time of Christ. So the world was set up perfectly for the first coming of Christ. In fact, if you just slip over to the book of Galatians for a quick second whatever a quick second means. Galatians 4, verse 4, this is what Paul is talking about. He says, when the fullness of time came, the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under law. In other words, Jesus was dropped into human history through the virgin conception at exactly the right time. And if God can set the stage for the first coming of Christ, why is it so hard to believe that he could set the stage for the second coming of Christ? Of course he can. And the Gog-Magog scenario is one of those key stage-setting events that we're seeing develop in our own lifetime. So Syria and the presence of the big three in Syria is prophetically significant, not because Isaiah 17 is about to be fulfilled, not because Jeremiah 49 is about to be fulfilled, but because it's all stage setting concerning when the big three invade the land of Israel from the north. I mean, they're getting ready to do it because they're setting up a presence in Syria, just to the north of Israel. So I look at that and I say, wow, look how look how far we have progressed into the Gog-Magog scenario. I don't say, oh, Isaiah 17 is about to be fulfilled and rip a scripture out of context. Oh, Jeremiah 49 is about to be fulfilled, ripping another scripture out of context. But I say to myself, I believe in prophetic stage setting, and when I see the big three in Syria... That is stage setting for this invasion 
by a coalition of nations. And then I, then I say to myself, you know what? If the rapture happens before the tribulation period starts, and it does, and it will, and God is setting the stage this aggressively for the tribulation period, I think we're living on borrowed time. I think every moment that we have is a moment that we are spending on borrowed time. And therefore, I better be investing my life the right way. It's just not a time to be wandering back to the sin nature. That's the ethical, moral impact that this type of prophetic teaching brings. Um, John, in his little epistle, in 1 John 3, 2 and 3, says, He who thinks often of his coming, is that what you think about? I mean, do you think often of his coming? Or, or, or is our mind on something else? He who thinks often of his coming purifies himself, even as he is pure. Jesus is going to show up in the rapture. I know I'm going in the rapture because I'm a believer, but you know what? I want my life as it currently exists to count for eternity. And when I see the signs of Christmas, Christmas lights, Santa Claus, Christmas songs on the radio, I say to myself, Thanksgiving is near. Right? Because Thanksgiving comes earlier on the calendar than Christmas. I look at the big three in Syria and I say, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe the seven-year tribulation is that close. Oh, wait a minute, I'm a pre-tribulationalist, so the rapture's coming first. See, if you want to get into the first prophecies, the first prophecies is the rapture. All this other stuff that people are investing their time into, it's a distraction. Satan would love for you to take your waning moments on planet Earth involved in a distraction. And there are distractions everywhere. Amen? Just spend a little time on social media and you'll see distractions. I I, I can get so mad at people on social media that I stupidly, stupidly get hooked into arguing with people all day long. And, And at the end of the day, all I am is upset and angry. And I haven't changed anybody's mind. I mean, think think of that time that was wasted there that could have been channeled into something more productive. That's what end times teaching does. It, 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 like no other teaching that I know of in the Bible, it is um, a wake-up call from God to examine your life carefully. Not to determine if you're a Christian, but to determine the second tense of your salvation, which is your progressive sanctification. Um, One other quick thing on Damascus. Will Damascus be involved in the end times? I don't know. I don't think it will be involved in the end times because of Isaiah 17 and Jeremiah 49. But Damascus, Syria of Damascus, could potentially be one of the invaders in the Gog-Magog invasion. Why do I think that way? Look at Ezekiel 38 and verse 6. When the Gog-Magog invasion happens, it says, Gomer with all its troops... Beth Togarma from the remote parts of the north with all its troops. And what's the next expression? Many peoples with you. Syria could fit there within the many peoples. doesn't have to fit there, but it could. Um, look at Ezekiel 38, verse 9. I think it says this about five times. You will go up, you will come like a storm, you will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops, and many peoples with you. Look at Ezekiel 38, verse 15. 
You will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north and many peoples with you. See, when the Bible keeps repeating something over and over again, you have to say, this must be important. I mean, all the Bible is important. But you really need to pay attention specifically to what he keeps repeating. Ezekiel 38, verse 22, With pestilence and with blood I will enter into judgment with him. I will rain on him and on his troops and the many peoples who are with him. Look at chapter 39, look at verse 4. You will fall on the mountains of Israel and all your troops and all the peoples who are with you. So I guess what I'm saying when I say Isaiah 17 has already been fulfilled, Jeremiah 49 has already been fulfilled, I'm not saying take your eyes off Damascus. Take your eyes off Syria. Any type of teaching related to Damascus and Syria relates to potential stage setting for the Gog-Magog invasion. And Syria could be one of the invaders because Ezekiel's list of invaders is not exhaustive. He keeps saying over and over again, many people's with you. He mentions about nine nations, but there's going to be others. One of those could be Syria. So I think that's about as far as we can go on the matter without moving into dogmatism that you see today. You saw it in Joel Rosenberg's quote. He says, this is clear. Where people are saying Israel, Israelis are going to take out Damascus and that's going to light the fuse, which is going to ignite the Gog-Magog invasion. And this will be in fulfillment of Isaiah 17 and Jeremiah 49. I'm saying let's, let's hold back on that. I'm in favor of dogmatism on subjects that God is dogmatic on, where he's clearly spoken. I mean, if you're going to tell me there's many ways to heaven besides Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, you're going to get some pushback from me on that. Because Jesus said something about that. He didn't leave room for any wiggle room on that one. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Definite article, by the way, in front of each of those nouns. The way, the truth, the life. And if that wasn't enough... And he said at the end of that sentence, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Now there's a hill I'm ready to die on because God has spoken. I'm not going to die on this Damascus stuff. I'm not going to die on that hill because God has not clearly spoken on that. Isaiah 17 and Jeremiah 49 are not about to be fulfilled. Damascus could be prophetically significant because of reasons I just said. But don't dogmatically teach something that the Bible does not teach. So that takes us to the end of the prophecies of Elam and the prophecies of Damascus. And the only thing left to consider is the Psalm 83 war, which everybody is talking about. It supposedly is a prophecy that is going to be fulfilled before the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war. So people say, when do you think the Psalm 83 war is going to be fulfilled? And my response is, I hate to burst your bubble. I don't believe there is a Psalm 83 war. What? But when do you think the Psalm 83 prophecy is going to be fulfilled? I hate to burst your bubble because I don't think Psalm 83 is a prophecy. Psalm 83 is of the genre. Genre means literary type. Genre means species or kind. It's a French word. Psalm 83 is of the genre of an imprecatory prayer. It is not in the language of a prophecy like Ezekiel 38 and 39 is a futuristic prediction. Asaph in Psalm 83 is upset at Israel's perennial enemies and he's saying in in what you call an imprecatory prayer, 
Lord, I hope you wipe these people out. And there are many such prayers like that in the Bible. Psalm 83 is of that genre. It does not have the earmarks of a predictive prophecy. It is very, very different than Ezekiel, who uses language like, at that time, in that day, in the latter years, the bodies are going to be buried for seven months, the weapons are going to be burned for seven years. Predictive language of a prophecy, Ezekiel 38 and 39. Psalm 83 is not like that at all. Not like that at all. And so the next time we're together, I'll be giving you uh, five reasons why Psalm 83 is not what people are turning it into. They're taking an imprecatory prayer and turning it into a predictive prophecy to build a two-phase attack, which is very sensationalistic and sells a lot of books, but like Isaiah 17 and like Jeremiah 49, that's not what Psalm 83 is about. So if you want to do some homework for next time, read through Psalm 83. And so we'll take a look at that next time. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word, your truth, how it speaks to our lives. Help us to be right dividers of your word in these last days. Be with us as we take communion this morning in remembrance of you. And also um, study the book of Genesis and fellowship around the fellowship lunch. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen.